We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Don Durrett, author, investor, and contributor to Seeking Alpha and founder of goldstockdata.com, also the new author of his own Substack. How are you today, Don? Hey, thanks for mentioning Substack. It's free, people. Go out there and, and get my, read my list. I have a lot of lists of gold and silver mine stocks I've added on substack.com. Just search for Don Durrett. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've been finding that Substack is an excellent, excellent resource. You know, there's lots of previous guests of the show that have excellent substacks like, you know, Quoth the Raven, Doomberg, Vince Lancey. It seems to be a great place to be able to put a bit longer form thought lists, whatever you want to put on there, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll give them a plug. I, I was very impressed. I, I didn't know what Substack is, but I went and checked it out. They basically give you a free website. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's simple. I mean, you just go, all you have to do is go on their website and do a new and do a new post. And it's basically, you know, a blog of yours that you're creating for free. They don't charge you, don't, don't charge me a penny for doing it. It's, it's pretty awesome. I think it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Well, and I think one of the things that is really attractive about it as well is the anti-censorship nature of it. You know, there's, there's some very, very edge case parameters that they want you to stick stick within and other than that they don't want to censor any any of the speech on there they don't approve your articles they just instantly post Mm -hmm. yeah it's like your own website it's it's pretty cool yeah so don you know we kind of started chatting today before we hit record here about the idea that basically wall street and the mainstream media or let's say financial media is always bullish and i was kind of making the point to you that it could be a case of almost garbage in, garbage out. If they're being fed data that is so backwards looking, they're, they don't know how to base those decisions. And then they're always going to be surprised by what ends up happening, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, we get confused because the people, a lot of the people that are releasing information, such as the government, such as your business, cable business news, and some of your analysts, but the people that get a lot of the, you know, the attention, if you will, you know, like government numbers today, you know, CPI was 6.5%. And people think that that's an accurate number. We can go by it, you know, it's mm-hmm. perfectly, it's legit, you know, right? But the government, it's in their interest to not a, not to have an accurate number because they have to actually pay more money out. So unfortunately, it's a Social Security, right? It's kind of based on CPI. And, but if you go back and you look at how they calculated CPI from 1970 to today, they've actually adjusted it, you know, and I think they adjusted it again this year, they've adjusted it like three times on exactly how, you know, they calculate the CPI. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and you use the old method, it's higher than it is today. So why is today's number so accurate, right? I heard a guy today on Business Cable saying, these are facts. These are facts, right? Facts based on what? Um, you know, and so you get, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? So you get misled 
So, and I think a lot of people, you know, they say the inflation rate is 6.5%, but um, the average person, if you ask them today, they're having trouble paying their bills. You know, why is that? You know, if it's only, you know, five, 6% inflation rate, they're probably not going to have trouble paying their bills. And so, and I, I don't think that, you know, a lot of these prices are done going up. We're seeing kind of shocks, right? Uh, kind of things, you know, like eggs right now are super high. And you know, like, what the heck? I have to pay triple what I used to pay. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not a 5% increase. It's like 200% increase. Um, you know, some things have come down. Some things have gone up. You know, we saw services today. I, you know, I, you know, I think we're going to get shocked on some of those things. Services are going to be sticky. Um, but, you know, inflation is a problem for the Fed because the Fed wants to get interest, wants to get their, you know, they want to get the Fed funds rate back to one, two percent to get the economy growing again. You know, it's kind of a Fed problem. It's more so than kind of the economy. I always say that the, what's more important than um, inflation is GDP. The Fed cannot allow GDP to go negative for an extended period of time because then if you if it goes negative during a period of inflation, then everything starts to blowing up really fast. That's why I think they're going to actually lower rates in the second half of this year. Because of that, GDP is actually more important than inflation because again, everything starts to blow up because they have all this debt, right? All this debt it is it, it's exposed, you know, if, if you start getting, you know, negative growth and then inflation um you know you're going to see more bankruptcies corporate bankruptcy it's just it's just a big mess it's ready to blow up so inflation isn't really the the number one key so everybody's focused on inflation today for instance on wall street everybody's ex- is focused on inflation coming down when in actuality the real threat and nobody's talking about it is the economy not coming back to life you know, they talk about this soft landing, but when has the Fed ever kind of gotten it right? They usually always overshoot or undershoot. And, you know, to expect them to have a soft landing, to expect them, especially with inflation here, I mean, without them doing, you know, Q, flipping from QT to QE in a big way, it's not going to be easy for them to restart the economy. And nobody's really focused on that. And there's that's kind of your garbage in, garbage out. It's like if you need to focus on kind of what the real data is, what the real data points are, and a lot of those data points are historical data points. You got to have a kind of a big, you know, horizon. You got to look back, you know, 1970 to today and kind of look historical what's happened. And then, for instance, this is huge. Just, let's just go from like 1990 to today, right? You had low inflation. You had low cost of goods like Europe. And and in China, both of them basically allowing the U.S. consumer to buy goods very cheaply, which is under which is basically uplifted our standard of living because then we had money to spend elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, like high healthcare bills or high education bills. But we had these low cost goods, which has allowed the economy to grow. And then you also had technology, of course. But a lot of it had to do with this low inflation, low interest rate regime that we've had over the last 30 years, right? And now that's gone. It's not coming back. Cheap goods from Russia, I mean, China and Europe are not coming back overnight. And so that's going to create, you know, kind of a problem for the U.S. economy. 
because we've depended on that. And so, you know, that these are kind of some of the data points that people aren't really focusing on. For me, it's all about the economy. Is it, how, are we going to be able to restart it? And if we restart it, you know, I don't think growth is basically going to go much beyond zero to one percent over the next two years, for instance. You know, people are thinking second half of the year, you know, the stock market's come roaring back 2024. We're going to go into this growth cycle. Not so fast. Um, be, you know, as Lee Corso likes to say, you know, restarting this economy is not going to be easy, I don't think. And if, if you can't restart it, you have all these minefields. And now, you know, just as an analogy, you have these minefields of like debt blowing up, mm -hmm. liquidity crisis blowing up, you know, dollar crisis. All these little, you know, these economic minefields are out there. Are we going to dodge all of them and just start, you know, go back to normal? The risk reward or the odds of that are very low. And when you when you look at all the data points, mm -hmm. instead of just focusing on the near term, instead of just focusing on government data, you know, that's like kind of that garbage in, you know, focus on all the data points and then come to the conclusion what's going to happen. Um, so there's your answer. <laughs> well, Don, you know, I, I wanted to jump in there and and kind of add, you know, the idea that when they come back to the table, when the Fed comes back to the table to try to, you know, restart the economy, you kind of recently wrote a little bit of a review of Zoltan Pozar's article saying that this is going to be one of the first times that the Fed is being reactive instead of proactive. So does that make a really material difference in the effectiveness of what they're trying to achieve? Yeah, I really like that question. And I, and I think Pozar's right. And, and you know, basically what he's saying is that the Fed is going to have no choice. They're basically, I forget the exact terms, um, but he basically said they're, they're going to have no choice but to uh, basically, you know, to go to QE to lower rates. Mm -hmm. They're not going to lower rates, uh, you know, in a proactive manner It's because they don't want to lower rates. Because if they lower rates, then it could cause a, a long-term problem for them. Because they lower rates too fast, and inflation could, you know, go back up, um, or could stick, be sticky, cause more and more problems, and the problems start to fester. And so, yeah, he's basically saying that they're going to have to be reactive, and they've never had to be reactive, never ever. So now they're like, oh, gee, they're going to have to do something they don't want to do. That's a that's a first. Um, you know, and so, you know, that's that's for me is a really, really bad omen where the Fed loses control. And that that's kind of one of my predictions for this year is that the Fed's going to lose control. And what I mean by that is once they had go into a reactive mode, they're no longer controlling what the economy's doing. Right. And so that's bad. I mean, if you go back to 2007, eight. The Fed was very proactive and they were controlling things. They were lowering rates to basically zero, printing money and doing whatever they wanted to do to stimulate the economy. Now it's a completely different story. Now they're currently being proactive, lowering rates. Absolutely. Proactive doing Q in Q QT. Very, yeah, that's, that's what they've been. They've been in a proactive mode. Um, you could say that, you know, since, I don't know, 1970 forward. But now, 
as this year unfolds, you know, I think Pozar's right. They're not going to have a choice here. They're going to have to do QE because if they don't, you know, basically what I'm saying, the GDP is going to, you know, implode and they can't allow that to happen. So they're going to be in a quandary here, mm -hmm. reacting. And once they go into a reactive mode, um, bad things can happen. That's when you get a liquidity crisis, which I think we're going to have at least one, maybe mm -hmm. multiple liquidity crises. And all liquidity crisis is, is when one company basically is broke, but they're going to impact others, right? So you got to bail them out, you know, kind of a layman type event. And people have been saying that what the, the first one is going to be in Europe. It's going to be a European bank because all these European banks are kind of in trouble as far as liquidity. And so that's going to be started. And, the, and, you know, the Fed will probably help out in that regard. You know, they might send them, you know, 100 billion, 200 billion, but they'll help out. But it'll be kind of a ECB problem. But I think that's where kind of the first one's going to happen. But I don't think the U.S. is going to be immune to a liquidity crisis on its own. So that's two for this year we're probably going to have. Well, you know, the the Fed kind of seems to be, as you're, as you're saying, trying to be proactive. And I believe, you know, part of what Powell is is trying to achieve here is to to break the the Fed put, right? The fact that everybody always relies on the Fed to to come to the rescue. So do you see the S&P slipping quite a bit more from here as the Fed is is, you know, in some ways trying to trying to stamp that out? And what do you see as the most likely cause of them you know, stepping back into pivot if it's not that financial stability of the broad indices. So this is something that, you know, people aren't talking about. Pozar is one of the few. Groman's another one. But what is crucial here is that the Fed is has their tools in order to be proactive and not reactive. So what are their tools? Their tools, they only really only have two tools. One of them is lowering rates, right? They want to be able to lower rates when they want to lower rates. And number two is QE to print money. And if you have those two tools, you can you basically can control your destiny, right? And they want those tools back. And that's the reason why they're they're raising rates. You know, they're going to raise them another point two or two twenty-five basis points in February first. And, the, and and people say, why are they raising rates? They don't need to. Int inflation is going down. They're raising them because they want their tools back. And they're totally paranoid that they're going to have to get in this reactive mode where they no longer can use those tools. And, and I submit that they've already lost them and they've lost control. And they should have never raised rates beyond 3%. Once they raise rates beyond 3%, they basically lost control. And you know, people are saying, well, if they don't raise raise around above three percent, inflation is never going to come down. But again, I'm telling you, inflation isn't the number one problem. It's it's growth, GDP. So they should have never raised rates beyond three. That way, they wouldn't have killed the housing market. They wouldn't have killed the vehicle market. They wouldn't have killed the retail market. And so once they got went above four, it's it's kind of you know, my opinion, it's kind of over for them as far as being in control where they have these tools that they can use. And if you're really paying attention, you will see that they've already lost their tools, right? They can't lower rates to zero today. They can't do QE to, you know, kind of to infinity. Remember we used to talk about QE to infinity? Mm -hmm. That's gone. That's gone. 
They can't do that anymore. And so this is a big, big sea change, absolutely huge, which people aren't really paying attention to. They're paying attention to the short term. Rates are coming down. Everything's going back to normal, which is an illusion. Pay attention to what's really happening with the economy. Can the economy get back on its feet? Can the, can the Fed get their tools back? And I'm saying right now today that the odds are against that, and it's it's going to be very very difficult for the Ted for the Fed to get into that kind of a very strong proactive position again. Mm -hmm. And and really, what it comes down to is I mentioned earlier about how no longer do we have this uh, economic system where you have cheap goods from China and Europe, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of a foundational thing. But in tandem with that, you have this explosion in debt, consumer debt, corporate debt, government debt, absolute explosion. That's not conducive per se to a big growth spurt, you know, go back to 3% growth. Then you have a demographic problem. You mentioned demographic problem in, in China. Yeah, they do have a demographic problem, Europe and the US, right? Mm -hmm. The US has a demographic problem because all your baby boomers are, are retiring. And when they retire, they have less income. And so and, and they were also more reliant on on you know their their pensions, the healthcare system, things like that, too, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's not conducive. So that's another data point you have to look at, you know. And how do we get things rolling again? Right? It's like you gotta be nervous if you're looking at all the data points, and that's where I'm kind of coming from. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at all the data points and then I've never been more bullish for gold and silver going into a year because of what everything I've explained so far in this interview. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe let's just kind of stick with that macro picture for a, a little bit more if we could, Don. Thinking about, you know, another kind of sea change that that you and I talked about as well before we hit record was the idea that we're not getting these cheap goods from, from the rest of the world anymore. So how and when did that change so much and why is it that 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 is going to have such a, a dramatic effect on basically our prices and our everyday living i i think it's actually a very simple answer and and it's basically what it comes down to is the u.s standard of living mm -hmm. so the u.s standard of living has been basically propped up by cheap goods importing into this country. I mean, Walmart's basically 90% Chinese goods or something like that. So you've had these cheap goods. I mean, for instance, our, our computers, anything electronic, our televisions, our phones, they've all been subsidized by cheap labor, the, you know, globalism over, overseas, which has propped up our standard of living. But who's benefited? You know, the top 10% is who's really benefited. And our social structure is actually decayed. Because the middle class, they haven't caught kept up. The middle class wages, the middle class standard of living. You know, I, I would submit that the average person today that wants to be middle class, it's like age 20 to 35. Their standard of living is probably going to be, be not as good as their parents, um, especially upper class. I mean, unless your parents basically help you out. But if you were raised in an upper middle class family and you're 20 to 35 and you're on your own you went to college your parents aren't giving you any money and you're totally on your own trying to make it on your own kind of thing mm -hmm. <laughs> you're looking at your parents lifestyle going i want that 
I want that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to duplicate because today, you know, the average new house is what, $450,000. You know, the average new car is about 50. It's like, you know, you, you're getting out of college and you're starting to pay 60,000 maybe. That's not doing it. That's not, that's not doing it, right? On, on, top so, of, on top of your massive student loan debt as well. Right. So, you know, the dynamics have changed for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. tremendously to the negative side. And I don't think it's getting better. I think it's getting worse, which is scary. So you're going to, what you, I think what we're going to see is kind of the winners and the losers. Middle class is not going to improve, I don't believe, this decade. But what you're going to have is a lot of winners and losers and then the decay of social society, the decay of the social fabric. We're already seeing it um, with politics, right? You have this total split of the left and the right, where they don't talk to each other. Look at the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party can't even, you know, kind of get, get, agree on, you know, kind of what they believe or what they're going to support. You know, they went after McCarthy. They went after McCarthy. So you have a, you have a, you know, a frag, fragmentation there. But I mean, they don't like each other, and they definitely don't like Democrats, right? So how, how do you solve problems? If you, how do you solve problems when both parties won't talk to each other? When both parties dislike each other? Both parties think the other is is basically ruining the country, and that's where we've we've actually gotten to. Mm-hmm. We've gotten to the point where each each party points their finger at the other one and says, "You're ruining the world. You're ruining the United States." So we have, if you have that type of friction, how do you solve the problems? So. So we have a we have a massive political problem on top of our massive economic problem, and so how can you, uh, as an underline, you, you talked about you know those cheap goods, how do they impact? So our standard of living is getting impacted to the negative, which isn't going to improve. And now inflation's it's inflation's not, I don't believe is going back to two percent, you know, in the next two years. I just don't think it's going to, mm-hmm. and I think that you're going to see. Basically, the government numbers being very misleading. I mean, even if the government's numbers go down to three percent, three and a half percent, I think they're going to be misleading because I think that people are going to be seeing inflation in in different areas. Um, you know, it's going to impact it's going to impact people differently. But I don't think that the cost of living is going to go down. Um, for instance, today rents are extremely high. And I don't think they're going to go down. And so, you know, and I don't think that earning, uh, wages are going to go up to offset that. I think what's going to happen is the rents are going to be flat. You know, if they're flat for the next two years, it's still you're still kind of screwed if you have to go rent because the rents are high. Um, percentage of your income, right? So that that's inflation, right? You can say that inflation is at 5%, but I'm paying my rent is 30, 25, 30% higher than I paid two years ago. Mm-hmm. That's st- that's still with me. I'm still losing. I'm still getting killed here. I'm still getting killed. And you're telling me inflation's at six percent, but I'm still getting killed. Mm-hmm. That's that's not you know, and and that's the problem, you know, with what's happened here globally, because globalism is not kind of going to go back to where it was, and you know, our standard of living is no longer getting propped up. So we got to deal with that, and so that's not. That's not a pretty picture. Well, and obviously another big part of that inflation picture is going to be 
the energy side of that that equation and that input. And it doesn't seem like we're making any stride towards trying to solve any of those problems, trying to increase production, trying to you know, refill the SPR, whatever example you want to use. It doesn't seem like we're making any headway to make things any easier or cheaper from that supply standpoint, right? Yeah, I, I'm a bull. I'm bullish on commodity prices and energy prices going higher this decade. You know, I, I, you know, copper's at $4 right now. I think we are going into um, a global recession this year. And you would think copper would go back down to $3. But I, I think copper potentially could be higher by the end of the year, even if even in a recession because of inflationary pressures. I think copper is going to go to six to seven dollars um, this decade. I think oil is going to go to one fifty, one you know, one twenty to one fifty. People think it could go even higher than that. But I think once you get to about one thirty five, everything kind of kind of breaks. It's kind of demand kind of slows down one thirty five to one fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, things really break. You get above one fifty. Um, so yeah, net gas has come way down. I think it's going to go back up. A lot of your base metals, I think, are going to go higher. I mentioned copper, but I, I'm kind of a commodity bull because. Um, you know, I, I think that right now, because what they've done, you know, the Ukraine war, um, you basically kind of upset, you know, the global movement of commodities with Russia. Russia is a big, you know, commodity, you know, exporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, upset the whole dynamics, which, which, which increases prices, Right, it definitely increases prices, and, and it gets causes reverberation throughout the system. Right now, uh, Russia is selling their oil below cost, right? Not below cost, but below market, significantly below market. So, you know, how long, are, you know? And I think they're withholding some exports, um, and there, there's not, you know, global supply is like I think like a hundred. So I'm just throwing this out there: hundred billion, you know. Is it a million barrels a day? I think it's 100 million barrels a day. And, and exports are only about 32, about a third of it. So if you squeeze exports, ex, I've always said exports is much more important than the overall production. So I focus more on, you know, what's the, what's how many, how much exports are there? Mm-hmm. Because exports are difficult to increase. Saudi Arabia came out and said that export, you know, we don't have any, um, you know, extra that we can add for our exports. So it's going to be difficult over the next few years to increase exports. So if that's the case, let's say you're kind of stuck at 32 million barrels a day of exports and you can't increase them. How do you get economic growth if there's no growth in exports? Mm-hmm. And so energy, I think, is a big problem for this decade. And that's another I think that helps gold and silver because higher energy prices hurt the economy and weak economies create instability in the debt markets. And I, I think the bond debt market is is where gold shines. I think that's where that's what's going to push gold to 3000 is basically problems in the debt bond markets. And just that that capital flow out of those bond markets into something that is perhaps performing better at that time, right? Well, it's basically safety. You you, you don't trust your bonds, and so people go to bonds for safety. And if they don't trust their bonds. Where do you go next? You either go to fiat cash or you go to gold. So gold 
I think a lot of people will go to gold, especially, you know, fiat cash is not going to go up. It's going to go down. Mm -hmm. But if you think gold is going to go up, then wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm holding bonds. Gold's safer and gold's going to go and perform better. Yeah, you mentioned perform better. Yeah, it definitely can. Mm -hmm. So I'm I've always said and I've always believed that the whole the key to gold is basically going to be kind of extra's pyramid where people move down the pyramid into safety. So they moved into gold because they want to hedge their assets. It's like it's the only it's the last haven, you know, for for safety is gold. And so if you have kind of a an era epic change which I think we're seeing today, you have systemic risk goes up and people go into gold. You know, the gold is 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 not a good investment other than hold and then holding its value. It's not a good investment period. It's good hedge. The only time it really makes sense is when you have systemic risk. Mm-hmm. When you have systemic risk, it makes a lot of sense. And and, and I think that's where we're, we're we're heading this year. Yeah, it seems like there's no no lack of systemic risk to be able to try to have gold to to make up for. But one piece that we haven't really touched on yet is is the kind of the path forward for the dollar here, Don. You know, when the rate hike started, the dollar took off, gathered a lot of strength, and then seemed to falter a little bit towards the end of last year. Do you see that trend continuing with with more rate hikes or or how do you kind of you know do you do you have an explanation for that type of behavior? Well, it's it's very obvious to me that it went to one almost got to 115 because Japan and Europe refused to raise rates. Right? Japan and Japan was at 0.25 and just, they were just satisfied. They were, they weren't raising them. And so the yen exp, you know just took off. I mean, if you look at the chart. And then the same thing with Europe. Europe wasn't raising rates either and it, they went down to less than less than 1 to 1. Right. And they got, I think they got down, uh, you know, high 90s. And now they're back to like 107. And Japan has come down. And that's why you have the dollar today, I think, is at 102. And so it was at 114. And it's come from 114 to 102 because the Fed basically is kind of done raising rates. They got one more, maybe two more. And Japan and Europe are still raising rates. And so I think there's going to be one more move up here into the dollar as a safe haven play mm-hmm. when the when the selling comes that's when the you know that's when the fear comes when the fear arises we're going to see a move in the into the dollar now the one thing that we haven't seen is this whole you know this whole idea that you know there's demand for dollars out there you know the, the milkshake theory and the, the reason why the dollar went to 14 is because the dollar you know there's all this demand internationally to pay off you know the debt so have to sell their currencies buy dollars to pay you know the debt and it's a good argument i, I kind of i you know it's hard to deny that mm-hmm. but i don't think that's what drove it to 114 i think what drove it to 114 is what i said before about europe you know the dxy i mean 65 percent is basically the yen and the euro mm-hmm. and those two currencies weren't raising rates so you basically had you know this trade with contrast people, effect yeah, well, yeah, it's like, wait a minute here. I'm going to sell my yen, you know, I'm going to buy bond, U.S. bonds because, you know, it's a carry trade. There's a, so I think it was a huge carry trade to push it to 114. It wasn't, you know, this dollar milkshake idea myself. 
And so the, the dollar milkshake doesn't seem to really be working here. What seems to really be controlling the dollar here is, you know, interest rates. And so, and, 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 that, and the next thing I think, you know, I could be wrong, you know, the milkshake theory could be right and we could be heading to 120 on the DXY, but I don't. I, I think that the high was in at 114. I think it's going to bounce here because of fear. People are going to use go to the dollar. When the selling starts in the S&P, I think it's going to go to 106 to 109 is my guess. But, you know, I could be wrong here and this milkshake there could be right and it could just keep going, 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 right? You have this huge demand for dollars. Mm -hmm. um, but right now I'm not seeing that. And so we'll have to wait and see. And, and my gut feeling is that you get a run into the safe haven during the selling. And then once the selling's over, people start dumping dollars because the U.S. economy looks weaker. And they're like, I don't want to own U.S. assets. The U.S. assets look really bad right now. The U.S. economy looks bad. I want out. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, when the dollar goes down. I think the dollar is going to end the year around 95 is my gut feeling. But it's the euro dollar thing is a mystery, right? There's more dollars floating around internationally than there are in the U.S. The irony of all that is that the U.S. had no say in how those dollars were created. Basically, when they allowed, once they, in, in, after 1971 too, when Nixon got rid of the gold standard, they allowed foreign banks to make loans in dollars. And we don't have a say in that. Mm -hmm. they, just make, they just make a loan in dollars. You know, no problem. You want a loan, you go into a corporation in, in Europe, anywhere in the world, actually. They go to the bank and they say, look, I want to borrow $10 million. And the bank says, you know, what currency do you want to use? Well, let's use dollars. So they're paid, they get, they basically give them euros and they pay them back in dollars or they give them dollars or whatever, but they create, it's a loan, right? So they create dollars, which is crazy, right? They literally, the foreign banks literally create dollars and we have no say on it. We, so we that they can them, use it for trade. We can't tell them not to create, the, not to create dollars. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. That's why there's more dollars internationally that are in the US and we didn't create any of them. They're all created by foreign banks. It's it's pretty weird. And mm -hmm. so I don't know how that's going to affect the value of the dollar, all those dollars floating around. But my feeling is this, is that this is actually not a good thing for the U.S. because if you're holding dollars and they start going down, which I think they will, they could all flood back into the United States. I, in other words, I don't want these stinking dollars. I'm selling them. I'm getting mm -hmm. rid of them. Mm -hmm. So they created all these dollars, and now they want to get rid of them for their currencies. Mm -hmm. And they come flooding back to the U.S. Well, that's deflationary. That basically pushes the dollar down. It's a, it's a doom loop, if you will. Mm -hmm. So yeah, If they can, if other countries can just create these dollars out of thin air, though, why wouldn't they just keep using that system and you know, to their advantage when they need to pay for anything. Well, they have been, but, and, and a lot of it, yes, there was an article yesterday in Zero Hedge and they said, it's, oh, they're over $50 trillion in, in these, in these Euro dollars. It's like, whoa, it's like, it, and, and they're, they're all shadow, they call it shadow banking. Mm -hmm. They're in their off balance sheet. Uh, all these all these dollars that have been you know created and they're like this is a problem this is a potential problem here um but 
Um, the one thing, it, it, if, if you're a bank, you have to say solvent. So if you make a loan, you got to you want to get paid back. And and if you know if dollars are going down, you might not get paid back. Mm-hmm. So you might not be making any more. You know, you might not make these loans if if you're nervous about the dollar. The per- the reason why they made these loans is the is the idea that the dollar would be stronger than their currency. The dollar would stay up and their currency would go down. So let's make the loan in the stronger currency. Mm-hmm. So that could reverse. And then you you also have this this possibility where the BRICS create their own currency. And I think they will because Russia needs a new currency because they're kicked out of SWIFT. And so what do they what do they use? And so I think a new currency is coming, this international trade currency, if you will. I don't think they'll use it locally. I think it's maybe, but I think it's more of a trade currency. Um, we'll have to wait and see. But if that happens, all of these BRICS countries no longer need as many dollar reserves. So they could sell their dollar reserves, which puts pressure on the dollar. Mm-hmm. So you have that problem too. And so it's another data point that you know people need to look at. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Don, you know, we're we're speaking here on the the 12th of January here. And Gold seemingly has had a, an excellent start to the year so far. You know, this morning we saw touch off 1900, come back down a little bit. Do you think the some of the strength that we're seeing currently is partially due to the seasonal spike in the new year after tax loss season? Um, I, I I would say no because the, the miners have not performed as well as as, as gold and silver have. Mm-hmm. Um, so you haven't, it's early on, but we haven't really seen, you know, the HUI is at 257. So, it, I mean, it's gotten some strength here off of the, off of the gold, but historically, if gold's at 1900, the HUI should be at 300 or higher. So the miners are definitely underperformed here. And I think the reason why they've underperformed is kind of my thesis that you're not going to get a breakout in gold and silver. And when I say breakout, talking about the bull market resuming. So in order for the bull market to resume, you have to get above, um, I would say, 28 on on silver. It needs to confirm at 30. And then gold, you got to get to 1950 and then confirm about 2050. Mm -hmm. I don't think, so I think, you know, gold is basically at the top here. It's basically topping. Um, silver's under underperforming its breakout, but it, it it broke out earlier than gold, and, and it got stuck at twenty four. But both of these breakouts are they're great for gold and silver miners because what this means is that we're going to have a higher low. So my targets. So what's going to happen, in my opinion, is that Wall Street's going to wake up to the fact that we're not going to have a soft landing, and once they wake up to that fact, you're going to see serious selling in the S and P. I think we're going to go down somewhere between 3,000 and 3,300. Well, that's, you know, 15% down from here. So if you go, if the S&P goes down 15%, I think gold easily goes down, you know, 5%. So that's about $100. And so I'm thinking, and I think it's, you know, we're 1,900. I think we're going to, you know, go, I don't think 1,800 are a hold. So my range is 1,720 to 1,750. That's where I think gold's going to have a lower, low, lower high. Mm-hmm. Uh, higher low, excuse me. 
And silver, I think, is going to um, go down somewhere between 20 and 21.95. So basically high 20s, low 21, somewhere in there. And so, but the good news and the HUI, thank goodness, is going to hold 200, hold 200. So this is kind of my best case scenario. Whereas when you have the, when you get the final sell off in the stock market, gold doesn't get hurt, doesn't get damaged. A damaged gold would be like 1550. Mm-hmm. We, if gold went to 1550, it would get damaged and it would take maybe two years for it to get back to 2000. We don't, and, and thank goodness when that's not going to happen, right? And silver could have went, you know, silver was at 1750 was its low. That's not, we're not going to see that. So if gold went down and, you know, but it's all about gold. If gold went to 1550, silver would probably go low 16s, maybe high 50s. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to happen now, I don't think, because gold and silver are at these levels right now, right before the sell-off starts. And my targets, we might not hit them. We could, we could go, we could actually have a higher low above my targets. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. Right. So, but I think my targets are kind of that's kind of the low end. And we could, and the and the good news here is that, and I think this is going to happen over, you know, the first and second, the first half of this year. Uh, I think that, you know. Should the selling in the S&P, it, it could get delayed. I mean, I think it's going to happen in the next 60 days, but it could go all the way to April, May before Wall Street finally gives in. You know, they just b- keep this belief going in, so- in the soft landing all the way till April, May. I mean, that's a possibility. Um, the best thing that could happen is we get to selling in, you know, February, March, and we get it out of the way, and then gold starts to run in April. That's my hope. And so, you know, when it starts running, for instance, you go, let's say it goes down to like 1750, 1770, mm-hmm. it could be back over 1800 in two weeks. And then once it's over 1800, it's like off to the races. And so then you get this, this April movement from, you know, let's say we bought them in, you know, March, early March or something. In April, you could be knocking on the door 1900 again, but this time, we're looking at a breakout because we got the, the selling out of the way. Um, so I've been talking about this since last January. <laughs> that gold is basically stuck here until we figure out what the markets are going to do. Mm-hmm. And we're still stuck. And when I say stuck, I mean, I'm talking about the bull market resuming. And when I talk about the bull market resuming, I'm talking about higher highs. Mm-hmm. So something I've asked a number of guests recently, Don, is is when the supply deficits in silver start to matter. You know, last year we saw a significant amount of silver leave the COMEX, but when and if ever do we start to see or think about seeing an actual shortage of metal and how that affects the price? Yeah, so a lot of people are really skeptical of this idea of a shortage in silver. I've been in this camp since I wrote my book. Uh, by the way, um, I'm updating my book right now. The ninth edition is going to be out in about a month for those people who want to read it. It's uh, best best ver- release yet. Okay, so back to um, silver shortages. So I in my first first book, the first time it came, I think it came out in 2010, first release of my book. Um, I talked about the possibility of a silver shortage because 
so much silver is basically sitting in landfills. So if you look at the inventory of silver above ground, especially 1,000 ounce bars, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we have like 15 billion ounces of, you know, silver in art form or silverware, you know, you have a ton of, you know, can be get recycled. So you got all that. But 1,000 ounce bars, the amount of inventory that's for sale is very, very low. We know this. And most of your silver in the 1,000 ounce bars that you, you know, that are in warehouses today, it's not for sale. Most of it is like in ETFs. You know, you have a billion ounces in ETFs. And then in tandem with that, 1 billion ounces in ETFs, you have a lot of silver that people basically own that, you know, that's not for sale on, on top of that, you know, you know, wealthy people that have bought silver, right? So 1,000 ounce bars are the key inventory for fabricators. That's what they buy. You have 100 ounce and then it jumps to 1,000 ounce. There's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And people, the people that are doing fabrication, they don't buy 100 ounce bars. They buy 1,000 ounce bars. And so that is what, so 70% of your supply, which is about a billion ounces, 70% of that is needed by industry, by fabricators. And so last year, there was more than 30%. I'm just using kind of round numbers, 70, 30. 30 percent um by investors and last year they went over that number and you had a deficit of over 100 million ounces so all those bars those 1000 ounce bars if you will last year they had to come up with above ground excess inventory of 100 million ounces so it was one of the biggest deficits we've had in the last few years so these deficits cut into this inventory, this above ground, I call it wholesale, for sale, you know, 1,000 ounce bars. It cuts into that. Mm-hmm. And that inventory cannot grow. It can't grow because you have a deficit. So all it can do is shrink. It can, it can grow. Now, that's if the price. Now, now, if the price of silver is going down, then your ETFs can actually, you know, they can sell their silver because they don't need it, right? People are getting out of their ETFs. But if silver prices are going up, you have this big problem of inventory because the ETFs, they need more silver because they're one-to-one. You know, the physical silver, you know, PSLVs and SLVs and SIVRs, there's three three big silver ETFs out there. Those three ETFs are all soaking in inventory when the price of silver goes up and and people buy more. And so my thought is that once silver gets to, I'm using this number, I've been using the number of $35 silver. Once you get to $35 silver and everybody comes out of the woodwork recognizing that silver's running, that's when you have this momentum, the FOMO going, right? Mm -hmm. The retail crowd starts showing up. They can't afford to buy gold. You know, they don't have $2,000. But they can sure afford a five ounce or a one ounce coin, a one ounce round or a five ounce bar. They can afford that. So they want to go to gold. They want to go to precious metals. They go to silver. That's the retail crowd. So you have the ETFs at 35 are soaking up more silver. And then you have, that's retail, by the way, that is retail inventory. Then you have the retail crowd buying, you know, bars, rounds, 
out, you know, coins in a big way, soaking up inventory. Then your deficit goes up, right? We're at 100 million ounces a day already on a deficit. You know, the deficit is probably going to jump 150, 200. I think that sometime, so that's when this inventory is going to start getting, I think, pressured, right? Sometime between $35 silver and I don't know how much higher than that, 50, 60 silver. I am a firm believer. I wrote this back in my, wrote my book back in 2010. I'm a firm believer that you, we will run out of silver on the 1000 ounce bars. You won't be able to buy it. It'll be gone. It'll be the only way you're going to have to wait. Right. And so once that happens, everybody's going to know about it. And the reason why is because one of your big manufacturers, you know, you, you can't basically build a car without silver. You can't build anything electronic without silver. So I think about all of the car companies in the world, right? There's like 10 big ones. Mm -hmm. One car company has to shut down their line because they can't get a part because the part is made out of silver, right? One of your big phone manufacturers, you know, they have to shut down a plant because they can't get their silver. All it's going to take is one, one. And the price of silver is going to go up 10, 20 bucks in a single day. I think that's what's going to happen. And that's one. That's the reason why I'm so bullish that silver is going to go to 100. People go, how is silver going to go to 100? Well, that's one way is, is shortages. Mm -hmm. But the other way is the debt bubble. So as the debt bubble pops, that means that you have bonds that are going bad. And if bonds are going bad, people are basically saying, I don't trust my bonds. I'm selling my bonds. I'm buying gold. That pushes gold to 3,000. If gold goes to 3,000, your GSR, your gold-silver ratio, in my opinion, will shrink to 30. You take 3,000, you divide it by 30, what do you get? It's $100 silver. Now, you say, Don, 30, 30 GSR? How are you going to get to a 30 GSR? Back in 1980, the GSR went to 17. <laughs> That's how much it shrunk. Basically, you take $850, which was gold, and you divide it by 50. That's what silver was at. The GSR was at 17. In, in 2011, the GSR got to 37. But silver was only high for what? A month, if that. And then it started shrinking. It started going down. So the GSR, it peaked at 37. It never got its opportunity to shrink more. If silver goes above 50 this time and doesn't correct and keeps going, that GSR is going to keep shrinking. So a 30 GSR is a very legitimate expectation at $3,000 gold. Hmm. Very legitimate. And a lot of people think it's going to go much lower than that. And I think it's very possible. So you have this dual potential of silver prices going to 100. Number one, shortages. Number two, gold, pushing it higher. But I do expect to have shortages. Now, some people say that the COMEX is going to be the trigger point. And right now, you only have 33 million ounces right now in COMEX and registered. That's not that much. Mm -hmm. I think I did the math on it. It's not, it's like $30 billion, I think, or some 17 to $30 billion to buy out all of COMEX. It's not a big number on the, in the scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And so once you get down to 15 million ounces, they got a problem, but then they can move, you know, uh, some of the silver into, into the registered. And so, it's not a you know a big they can do that but but so comics to me isn't the, isn't a big red flag 
Um, it, it could, it definitely could become a red, the red flag if comics has a problem. But I think prior to that, it's going to be a shortage of 1,000 ounce bars. I think that's the real trigger. That's mm-hmm. what I think, what I'm expecting. So Don, since the last time we spoke, you wrote uh, really a three-part article on Seeking Alpha that introduces your framework for how you think about gold and silver optionality development plays. So why don't we start with your idea of optionality and why it helps you identify a good risk reward situation? Yeah, I mean, so this is something that I've learned over years of investing is this idea that the risk reward can be phenomenal for companies that have gold and silver in the ground and they're not getting they're not getting valued for it in other words the market is ignoring them so if they get repriced higher the upside can be stunning and so if i value a company into the future for instance silver for instance this is a perfect example a lot of companies with silver in the ground right now are valued at less than a dollar an ounce and many of them are, are are valued at less than 50 cents an ounce right and so i like to focus on companies that have large deposits for optionality i'm just talking about silver but gold comes into play as well so i like to look at companies that are like more than 50 million ounces in the ground and ideally more than 100 million mm-hmm. and then i look at their current market cap so let's say a company has a market cap at $10 million and they have 100 million ounces in the ground. They're getting valued at 10 cents an ounce. I think at $50 silver, they're going to be worth at least 50 cents and possibly all the way up to $2. So that's a pretty big wide range. But a lot of it has to do with the location, mm-hmm. um, how the grade, um, how long is going to, is the project advanced or not? How long is it going to take them to get in, into production? So that's so you can basically say, okay, if a, a company has low grade and it's you know it's not you know like like Silver Elephant, right? They have I think you know they have like over 100 million, I think 120 million ounces, and they're valued at nine, let's say 10 million today. So they're valued at 10 cents an ounce, but their projects are you know they're not advanced. They don't have a PEA on them. You know, it's low grade. It's kind of like the worst, right? So that I'm only going to give them 50 cents. But if I give them 50 cents, that's $50 million. At 50, at $50, I think they're going to be worth 50 cents an ounce. So they're currently at 10 million. So that's basically 4X, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of conservative. That's one. Now, that's now a lot of people don't want to touch Silver Eagle because, you know, it's kind of, you know, they're not haven't made any progress. The stocks that you know hasn't done anything. I'm not touching that stock, right? So then what you do is you go up, you go up the ladder and you start looking for optionality plays that look a little juicier. Um, a good one for me is like Discovery Silver. So Discovery Silver has 1.5 billion ounces, uh, but they have 500 million ounces of basically pretty good grade that we think they're gonna mine. So I, I just value them at 500 million ounces. But at 500 million ounces, this is kind of a more advanced play. They're gonna come out with a, a PFS this year. I think like next quarter, they're, they're, they're more advanced. Plus they have good grade, plus they're in a good location. So it's more in the $2 camp. 
So if you take, you know, if you take the two dollars, then basically you're looking at, you know, one billion um, upside. So that that's kind of how I look at some of these bigger plays, valuing them. You know, it's kind of fifty cents to two dollars an ounce, and then you can look at as an optionality. You know, how much do you think it's worth? So if they're getting valued in the ground, if their gold and silver in the ground is being valued very cheaply. Then you can, you know, look at all the factors that are going to impact, you know, how much do you think that that is, you have to guess, make an estimate, how much do you think their gold or silver in the ground is going to be worth at, say, $50 silver or $2,500 gold? There's a lot of gold projects. So I would just mention silver there. There are a lot of gold projects. For gold projects, I like to work look more at 2 million ounces or higher. And there are a lot of exploration development stories out there that are getting valued at about $10 an ounce in the ground or less. And you can look at them. I mean, there's at least 20 pretty solid ones. I did on my, on my sub stack, I have a list of 37 uh, potential 10 baggers. And most of those, I don't know if most of them, chunk of them were optionality plays and a lot of them were gold optionality plays. And these are companies that have like two to eight million ounces of gold in the ground, and they're getting valued, you know, $10 an ounce in the ground. Well, a decent um, exploration um, company should, I mean, economic, you know, good location, no big, no big red flag should be worth at least $50 an ounce. Mm -hmm. And a quality one can go all the way up to like $200 an ounce, depending on how advanced it is, how de-risked it is. So you have like, remember I mentioned 50 cents to $2 for gold. So for silver, it's more like $50 to $200. So, and then you can, you can decide, you know, what's it worth. So there's a lot of companies out there, like, you know, I'll sell 4 million ounces right now, right? They're like, worth should be worth at least $100. That's $400 million market cap is what they should be worth at, at $2,500 gold. And most of these companies are worth like 50 million, you know, so they're like, they're, you know, five bagger potential. So these are the kind of optionality plays that really get my interest because I don't think there's a lot of downside risk to buying a lot of these companies. When you're buying gold or silver in the ground at these very, very low prices, the downside risk is, is really reduced, especially if you're right about gold and silver trending higher. Mm -hmm. It's the chances of these companies not doubling in value is very low. So then it comes to, do you get the return you're expecting? Are you going to get the three, four, five bagger? Or are you only going to get the one or two bagger? That's really what it comes down to. So I like to buy a lot of these optionality plays because I don't know which ones are really going to fly. But I'm pretty confident that a lot of them are going to fly. And right now is the option. Is I'm glad you asked this question because right now, this is the time you do it. When these companies are completely beat up and they're getting valued at these little ridiculously low prices. This is when you buy these optionality plays because, you know, once gold goes to 2,500 and they get repriced higher, the optionality goes out the window. Now you're looking at, you know, two baggers instead of five baggers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like just trying to identify that asymmetric play. And then, as you say, with the HUI not matching the rise in the price of gold, that seems to help kind of confirm that lower valuation point where we are in that cycle. 
Right. Um, yeah, I, I, it's right now, a lot of these juniors and a lot of these, you know, optionality plays, the optionality plays are either, these are companies that are not producing. It's either a, a drill story, you know, like, like Tudor Gold, it has 27 million, they, well, they only have 60%. They have like 17 million ounces of gold in the ground. It's low grade, 0.7, and they're valued like at $350 million. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, less than $10 an ounce. I think it's $5 an ounce. So Tudor Gold is currently valued at $5 an ounce in the ground, right? That's our exploration. And then you have development stories. And development stories, you're going to get the higher end of the range of what I was saying, you know, the, you know, the $2 for silver, the $200 bucks for, for gold. Mm -hmm. But it depends on how far advanced they are. The more advanced they are, the more money you're probably going to get. Um, but, you know, a lot of times these companies can get taken out. And they get taken out at a small premium and you don't get your you don't get what you thought you're going to get that's that's one of the bigger risks it's better yeah it, yeah it how long are they going to wait before they sell tutor's a good example so tutor's currently valued at five dollars an ounce how long do they wait before they sell do they sell at ten dollars an ounce they sell at 10 bucks you only got 100 percent return do they sell it, you know, they sell it 15, do they sell it 20, do they sell it 30? You don't know. You're you're we have no idea what price they're gonna sell. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if they develop it, it's gonna take seven, eight years. You know, do you want to wait seven, eight? If let's say they don't sell and then they go into development mode, you have to wait seven, eight years, and then, then they dilute you into the ground because it's gonna cost a lot of money to you know advance the project. So you have that issue. So there's a lot of issues that come into play. That's why you have to read my book to know all the all the all the all the angles. <laughs> yeah. And of course you have you have created a major library of information for for those that are interested in more of that. All of your links and all of your books are available through your Twitter at Don Durrett, two R's, two T's, right? Right, right. Don, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap up today? Um, no, I think we covered all the all the data points I wanted to talk about. Um, I, I I would I will reiterate kind of the the path forward here of kind of what's going to happen over the next five months mm -hmm. because I think these next five months are really going to be critical for gold and silver miners, right? So the next say. Four months, we're gonna we're gonna find out, if you will, if you know the S and P is gonna sell off, and then if the S and P is gonna sell off, we're gonna. I think we should get a bottom here in gold and silver and start trading higher. So by late spring, we should literally be off to the races. That's kind of the scenario that I'm envisioning. But I do a Friday on Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, just do search for Don Durrett. I do a Friday recap. And then the Friday recaps, you will uh, you will see how I basically this thought that I just gave you mm -hmm. uh, it will evolve over the next few months. So I'm going to follow. You know, we're going to see what happens here. But I think the from now until the end of May, I think we're going to really find out if you know my thesis is right, and that you know gold is going to break out here in um, you know first half of the year. And we're going to have, you know, one of the best years ever in gold and silver in the miners. Fingers mm -hmm. crossed. Yeah, time will tell. And your Friday thought is is excellent. And we'll make sure to 
post a couple of those on on our Twitter as well. Awesome. Um, and of course, like like I said, at Don Durrett, two R's, two T, two T's, your substack, dondurette.substack.com. And of course, goldstockdata.com. Don, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you uh, yeah. diving, diving in head first on all these things. Thanks, Don. Excellent interview. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.